Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Tom Walzik. Tom is the global operations executive with over 17 years driving transformational change for both casualty and specialty insurance carriers. Throughout his career, Tom collaborates effectively with all levels and possesses a relentless passion and energy when leading cross-functional teams. He continues to manage large-scale operations and complex portfolios while producing results that have exceeded expectations. Tom is currently the COO of Hiscox, a diversified international insurance group. So Tom, I'd like to welcome you to the Second Command podcast. Nice to be here, Cameron. Yeah, I'd like to um, just get a little bit of a, a background from you. First off, on what Hiscox is, so you can kind of walk us through a little bit about the brand so we have a little bit of perspective as to exactly what the company is and how it operates. And then maybe give us a little bit of some background on how you got to where you are today. Okay, so Hiscox is, as you said earlier, a global uh, insurance carrier that uh, particularly writes business in a lot of different markets, such as uh, the U.S., of course, uh, the London and particularly London markets, uh, Europe, we're in a number of countries, roughly eight countries across Europe. Uh, and we also have a presence in Asia as well. Um, the company prides itself on primarily working very closely with our brokers as well as our direct customers uh, in the, the underwriting, uh, servicing, and claim handling of their policies. Um, we, we have been in business for a number of years, uh, upwards of close to 100 if memory serves me, uh, largely uh, you know, originating out of the UK and London, uh, we have, as I said, grown to uh, expand into these other uh, geographic locations over time and at this point have, have really uh, developed into one of the leading uh, market players out there in the insurance space. Uh, we, we specialize in a lot of different risks, so we, we operate, um, you know, particularly we, we, we're, we're the largest writer of kidnap and ransom. Um, and we also are very big in with cyber insurance and uh, professional lines, as well as small business insurance, more on the commercial direct side. Um, and that should, should, should address that question. As far as the other item relative to my background, um, I currently I am, like you said, the, the chief operating officer for, for a function within uh, Hiscox, uh, particularly it's the claims function. Uh, that involves, like I said, the the oversight uh, and management of our claim operations, our, our technology and innovation, our quality assurance and compliance practices, as well as our um, you know change and operational excellence that we call it uh, within the company. Um, so, in particular, you know my background when I got into this industry approximately 17 or 18 years ago out of undergrad. Uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, searching where I wanted to, to first jump into the market. And, you know, I had a great opportunity to step into a role, uh, particularly in claims at that time, and, you know, learned a bit about the business and, and realized that um, it, was, it was something that was really interesting to me. Uh, it led to an opportunity where I began to quickly, um, you know, move throughout the, the company in terms of leadership positions, uh, worked in a lot of different cross-functional departments, 
uh, worked with contact centers, worked in finance and IT, and, and did, did a myriad of things uh, before landing on uh, where I am today. And, and I've worked at a number of insurance companies uh, across the industry, uh, approximately three to be exact, throughout that time. Uh, and most recently, I've had the opportunity to step into this role uh, working uh, with someone who I, you know, strongly consider a, a mentor and someone who's really guided me uh, to where I am today. Um, you know, like I said, the opportunity here is really massive in terms of the global exposure. And really, what I'm trying to do is bring the best of pra best practices across all, or across some of the most uh, mature business units, as we call them across the entire group or the global practices we call it. I know you guys are a publicly traded company. Can you, can you give us some sense of perspective on the number of employees at all? Is that something you guys can talk about? Yes. Yeah, so, so we have uh, approximately 3,500 employees across the, the group. Okay, so you're in a, you're in a huge company, 3,500 employees, or, or that's kind of like an enterprise level, but I guess it's not huge considering there's companies out there that are tens of thousands and hundred thousands. But it's still a pretty massive organization in terms of the the politics and the complexity. How do you kind of rise above that? Um, I read a book years ago called "Orbiting the Giant Hairball," and like, how do you rise above all the corporate stuff to really be able to get stuff done and and work on the critical few things and and see you know your efforts produce results? How do you? What kind of lessons can you give us there? Yeah, I mean, I think at Hiscox, one of the things that's really um, exciting but equally challenging is we are, in some respects, the ma a matrixed organization. So given the nature of the business units and how we operate, uh, like I mentioned, the U.S. and the EU and elsewhere, um, and being in a role like I'm in, which is group and more or broader, it does require, uh, um, you know, building very, very strong teams and, and being very collaborative with a lot of the leaders that that sit within those business units uh, to get, as you said, things done. Um, I think ultimately the, the, the way we achieve success is really by being linked very closely with what the mission is of each of those business units and then being able to really devise a plan, um, you know, in conjunction with them to, to really be able to move the, that business unit forward. Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to structure in terms of how you structure your team, making sure you have the right people in the right positions, and ultimately that, you know, the, the folks that are, that are providing the support around the core team are really in support of it and have buy-in. Uh, all those together have proven to be successful and will continue now to you be. Look from from, from your bio picture, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're like about 40-ish. Yeah, I'm a little bit younger than that, but I'm right. Close. So even <laughs> even being younger than that, that's even more impressive. Like to be to be a, a COO at this level and this size of an organization at at a pretty relatively young age. Why do you think that is? What skills have you been able to develop over the years, or um, you know, where do you think you've been able to grow over the years to get there? Well, I think I think the the biggest thing for me has always been my willingness to take on roles that might not always necessarily be you know, the, the biggest paycheck, so to speak, but much more about the opportunity to develop skills at a younger age. So when I was out of college, I remember, you know, there were a couple opportunities I had to, to basically take lateral positions, which, you know, on paper as a young kid out of school, you're, you're trying to address all the, you know, the things that we all dealt with, with, you know, school loans and such, and really being able to think bigger than that and saying to yourself, you know, I, I want to develop a certain competency and skill set. And in order to do that, I'm going to need to 
you know, take certain risks to get there. And I think over time, I've been blessed to work with a lot of great leaders, um, a lot of folks that have taken me under their wing and given me direction on where I should, you know, for example, further my education, uh, which I did and, you know, got my MBA, to, to getting more into more project management philosophies, methodologies, which I pursued my PMP, uh, project management professional, into, you know, the, the Lean Six Sigma and Six Sigma Black Belt uh, approach, and then ultimately, you know, also working more on insurance operational designation. So I think collectively all that, um, you know, built a very strong base and, and then just being exposed to, you know, great leaders and great projects and people and, and my, and frankly, my teams that have really helped groom that. That's, that's, yeah, I mean, you just, you just kind of listed out as if you know, like OG shucks your way through some pretty major skill base areas and some pretty major training programs. Was that something that the companies were pushing on you or was that something that you were out seeking on your own? Um, I think, I mean, the companies I work for have always been very supportive of, of professional, you know, personal and, and um, continued education. Uh, I, I, by default, am someone who always has tried to pursue things, even when people don't necessarily lay it out in front of me. I feel like those that do that are going to be, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons for it. I think you come, you, you clearly make it a mark that you are someone who's very proactive mm -hmm. And is looking to to improve not only yourself but the company by doing those things. And um, you know, like I said, most of the leaders I work for and and worked alongside, I was able to, you know, make the make the case as to why I felt it was the appropriate thing to do. And and fortunately for me, they were very supportive. It's interesting. Of it. Do you um, do you proactively hire for those kinds of people as well? Those self driven learners. Um, I I I am very much a I have a. Um, a soft spot for people who have that passion, certainly. I mean, I, I don't know if we necessarily, um, you know, seek out those roles. It's just given I've only been with this company now for a short period of time, and it's been very much, you know, kind of adjusting to all the things I already mentioned. But I can tell you that as as things become more stabilized in terms of the role and um, you know, some of the additional responsibilities I've been asked to take on, it will be more clear to me as to, you know, when you're seeking out the top leaders in, in this trade, you know, they, there is a specific skill set that goes along with it and, and passion, which is something that to me is, is, is imperative to be successful at this level. Um, you, you have to be able to motivate people and, and be motivated by things that might not always be the, the you know, the shiny toy. And, you know, fortunately for me, I have a lot of people around me that are, are very skilled in that regard. It's interesting. I'm just thinking of something that we have a, an organization called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. And at an event last year, one of our members, we were talking about how the leader's job is to grow people. And our job is to always be working on growing the, you know, growing the skill set of, of our pe people and our teams. And one of the ideas that came out of the group was to just hire self-driven learners. I was like, huh, never actually thought about it that way, but it's so important that people are actually driving themselves and driving their own learning instead of waiting to be taught. And I wonder if that's more of a, a real core behavioral trait now, even more than maybe in the last 10 or 20 years, just because the world and the industry and business is changing so quickly that, you know, 20 years ago, you had to be the person who'd, who'd learned a bunch of stuff and, and that was kind of what you based off of. But now it's like business has completely changed every 48 months, it seems. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one, one of the things, if I were to look back even before I came to Hiscox in terms of one of the things I'm most proud of, it, it would probably be, you know, really building out a true career development framework, right, for the teams that ultimately um, you support. And and what I mean by that is, you know, oftentimes it's easy to say to someone, you know, go back to school and get further education, you know, get your MBA, go to law school, whatever it may be. I mean, but that, that to me is only a piece of the pie, right? You really need to have people with the right mindset to then when they do achieve that, you know, important designation or degree or whatever it may be, that they now know how to apply it, right? So to me, it's it's like my former company, we, we very much built out a, a career kind of uh, development framework and, and it was imperative to do that given the, the, the state of the department at the time. And what I can tell you is at the end, I remember saying these exact words to everyone, which is, you know, we can, myself and our leadership team will support you to achieve your goals, but you need to want that. You need to want it. You need to push it and you need to drive that agenda. So, yeah, I totally agree. Like, it's not something that as a manager, you can, you can make everybody want to do, but those that actually have the passion and interest to do it are the ones that, frankly, in my opinion, become the most hmm. successful. Where do you think you've struggled in your career and in, in getting to the stage you're at now? Um, I think at times it's probably, you know, um, tough. I feel like maybe a little bit about uh, delegation has probably been a little bit of a struggle for me over the years, um, just because I feel like, you know, if, if you know the right way to do something, oftentimes you want to try to steer it. And what I've learned as I've gotten, um, you know, as I've advanced my career is you just don't have the capacity to take that that every decision that may or may not require your involvement on, you know, even in, even in stressful situations. So you have to really, like I said before, build a strong team around you to, to help with that. And then you can, you can think right above the clouds a bit and be able to drive results that you wouldn't have otherwise. And I think um, to me, I've, uh, frankly, I think I've developed a lot in that regard over the years because of, um, like I said, the support that I've gotten from a lot of my mentors and, and, you know, things they've told me, you know, step out of the weeds a little bit. Don't be, you're a very detailed person, analytical. You don't always need to be, right? You need to surround yourself with people that can provide that that skill. And, and you need to be thinking more strategically. And um, over time, I think that that has really helped. It's interesting it. when you come to that perspective or when you get gain that perspective. So what's, talk about your day-to-day -to -day today then. What do, you, what do you focus on now day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month? Um, I mean, right now it's it's uh, we're we're trying to to build out more of a a strategy around how our group or global function supports the business units that are much more focused, as you would expect, on their own um, their P and Ls, which uh, for obvious reasons, right? That's what they're accountable to. So it's really trying to extract uh, a lot of great ideas as it relates to you know target operating models, looking at, um, you know, obviously the people involved in terms of are they in the right roles, right? The right, are they, are we getting, are we, are we really maximizing the value that all the great people we have in our organization that actually have to bring to bear? And, and also the technology piece and process, right? Um, you know, figuring out is this the right process that we should be following for this particular, in our case, claim scenario or, you know, is this the best experience that we should be giving our customer? Kind of thinking of all those components. And then lastly, you know, using technology as an enabler where we can. You know, it's not necessarily, as you know, you don't just throw technology at every problem because then that 
you, you essentially just you know blow up your budget so you have to be very wise about how you allocate uh, dollars when you're when you're investing especially um, when we have a budget to manage to right so yeah when you're when you're getting these ideas from the team and when they're looking at opportunities in the organization how do you decide what to say yes to what to say no to and what to say not now I think often so that's a great question I think to me it's about uh, you have to set you know, clear expectations. So to me, every time, if an individual brings a problem or maybe a solution or whatever it is to me, oftentimes I ask myself and I ask them, it's like, did you think through all the scenarios that, that I would want to know before we had this discussion? And, and in the case of a business uh, need, for example, if, if a particular project wants to be you know, taken, um, you know, we want to take it off the ground or we want to uh, make a pitch to an executive team, about a certain initiative, it's like the the understanding and buy-in as to how you're quantifying the benefit we're going to gain from it, and then typically, obviously, the ROI that we expect to to yield and by when, um, you know, the the internal rate of revenue, the yeah. IRR. So I, I think it's 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 really a, that's a big part of what we've kind of built in terms of a discipline that didn't exist before. And I mean, we're not complete with it yet, but we're going to be working towards it. I think. You know, creating more standards and expectations around how people should approach, whether it's interviewing to define business requirements, whether it's, you know, uh, a process mapping and workflow out and really providing the appropriate call outs that really are impactful and not more just, you know, noise. I think I think all those things and then gradually over time, you you start to realize and frame what we, you expect from your teams. And then gradually they come to you with things that are pretty much fully baked. Right. And that's a very simple decision. So, but it's an evolution. It's like, it's like forming a team, right? You go through the whole, you know, the five or however many steps there are in that process. So it's interesting. I, I love that question. of Did you think through all the scenarios that I would want you to think through or that I would be thinking through? That's a really strong leadership position to come in from versus I think where most people go is a layer down from that where we say, you know, did you think about this? Did you think about that? You don't even go into those specifics. Yeah. You just keep it at the level of like, did you think of everything I thought through? How, how, how did you mm. learn to do that or to stay there versus, um, you know, getting into those specifics and, and not micromanaging, but like, you know, involving yourself where they don't necessarily need you to be involved and, and forcing them to, to think. Yeah. I think so. So a big part of how to be successful in this, in my view, is you have to know your audience, right? So to me, it's it's if I do my job and set the expectations clear enough, then they should be able to execute on it. And and you know this isn't like overnight; these things just happen. But you know, over time, I've seen that it's been successful in, in teams that I've worked with. Um, now, if you now conversely, if you don't set clear expectations, then you literally may have just wasted weeks and months of time that result in throwaway work, right? So that, so to me, that is a direct reflection on the manager and their, their ability to actually lead teams. Um, I think, I think, don't get me wrong, there is a moment where I do want to get in the weeds and understand like kind of the thought process, but when I get a comfort level with someone in my team and I understand where they're going and how they're thinking, it's pretty easy. Um, you know, I've learned over the years to really be able to figure out if they're thinking of things the way I would want them to, and the way I, you know, my my boss and and, and uh, managers would be would, would be wanting uh, as far as the information. Um, I think the other piece of it too is in, in the environment we're in, and like I said, the matrix organization. It's very critical to be engaged with 
the teams that we support. And as long as you know we are working very closely and being collaborative with those leaders, then the output that comes to me is really, it should be more tinkering and not rewriting, so to speak. I, I like that too. So you mentioned the whole matrix organization a couple of times. I think that really starts to kick in when you get over, you know, a couple hundred employees or, um, you know, when you've got teams of teams or multiple business businesses that you're running. Can you, just for some of the people that maybe don't know the term matrix organization, just describe what that means to you and then give us some of the tips of working within that kind of a framework. Yeah. So, I mean, a matrix organization is, you know, you, you may technically on paper first, you know, just to really break it down to the, the, to the core, you may report into um, someone that let's say sits in a group role. Um, so let's, let's use the claims department, right? We have, we have heads of claims for each business unit and they report in through our, our chief claims officer that sits in, in, in London, which is, which is my boss. And ultimately that individual, uh, excuse me, that individual in the, in the business units, uh, the heads of claims, like I said, they also report, you know, they're also part of a leadership team that involves the senior leadership team of that mm-hmm. business unit, right, which would involve underwriting and, and let's say finance and, and, and marketing and so forth. And, you know, it's very imperative, it's imperative to be able to, to navigate and, and work across those, those, those teams, right, because you know, a vision of a group leader is very much thinking about how to take the best the best practices and, and blend them across all of the of the business units, right? And and to do it with the most, you know, the best cost benefits, the 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 best speed to market, you know, the scale benefits if we ever were to grow in different markets and so forth. And and if you're in a particular business unit, while you do most certainly and we at Hitchcock absolutely do think you know, beyond just the, I don't mean to make it sound like it's only the business unit that's cared about, but it is, it is their primary function to make that, that business unit successful and profitable, right? So there is, there is an element of it, but the group role is a little bit different in, in, with respect to, to thinking, you know, the success is really making the, the, the sum of all the parts most successful, right? So it's a little bit different. I think in terms of answering your question about how does that, how do you make that work? Um, again, it's it's very important to be transparent, um, to work very closely with with the leaders across those different different teams, um, to make sure that expectations and what we're delivering for those specific business units are are crystal clear and there's no unknowns. In uh, that, and if those things are all aligned, which is it takes a lot of work. It's not easy being in a, a matrix organization. I mean. Con- Conversely, if you're in a more of a functional type of an organization, you you have a manager, and that manager is accountable for essentially everything that flows through that pipe, so to speak. And you know, it's not it's a little bit it's more challenging certainly when you have more of a federated model that requires more cross collaboration for for decision making. Curious on on kind of dealing with conflict management. I think in the functional model, um, it's hard enough, but how do you deal with conflict? which, you know, we need to, right? We need to have that healthy conflict and good, good debate and engagement. So how do you deal with, let's just say like the good conflict, right? Where you, you're disagreeing on something with somebody who's, who's in kind of the matrix side of the organization versus one of your direct responsibility, direct reports. How do you approach that? Do you have a model that you use or a methodology that works for you to, to deal with stuff like that where someone's, you know, you disagree with them or someone's frustrating you or a team's not getting stuff done or how do you deal with that stuff? 
I mean, I, I try to bring people together. I mean, really, um, to, to talk about, you know, what's the, what's the issue? What are we trying to solve for? Is it really important? Right. I mean, there, there are a lot of things sometimes with conflicts that, you know, people, depending on the person, right, may make something bigger than it needs to be. And, and being in a leadership position, right, it's, it's imperative and important to be able to, to kind of navigate through um, a lot of these different kind of conflicts and determine whether or not it's something that requires, you know, a steer such as, you know, this is how we need to solve it together or if it requires more of an individual kind of offline discussion with that direct report or person that you're working with, or if it's something that obviously involves something like an HR team, right, to be exposed to. So I think it's, it's, it's not, again, it's something that I think is developed over time to know, you know, know when to say when, so to speak. And then uh, I feel like, but, but that is definitely an exciting part of the job. I think it's, it kind of creates some excitement and, uh, and challenge every day. I I like the whole, um, just, you know, is it even important? I think that's something that happens often. I guess it would happen in the corporate world as well, but often in the entrepreneurial companies, you know, in the the 10 to 100 person companies where people are very passionately engaged in some idea they have and they hold on to that versus kind of taking a couple steps back and looking at it from the, the bigger perspective. Talk about um, about choosing your team and, and and recruiting key employees to come in and work with you. What do you look for? Um, you know, it's funny. That's a great, that's another great question as far as, cause I, I'm sure you hear different responses to that. Some people probably say, I look for people that are similar to me. Some people might say, I look for people that are completely different from me. Um, I typically try to find, like I said before, individuals that just have that, that relentless passion to, to want to do great things. And then frankly, to be part of something bigger than just themselves and be part of a, a high performing team. Um, if, if I see individuals or feel that individuals are not, are not up to that or, or are not someone during the interview process that I feel could take that type of work on, um, then obviously they're not right for the role. I would say the other thing that I feel like is so critical, especially as you advance in your career is, is being in a position where you're surrounding yourself with individuals who bring skills to the table that you don't possess. So for instance, if, if I, if I have the ability, and this is a very simple example, but if I if I have a, a very important need for we call it MI, so basically management information, you know, reporting, and I have specific you know uh, requests that are, are dependent or give me the information I need to make a lot of important decisions, then you know you need to bring in the right person that understands the business, but yet also has that competency to be able to go out and and be able to extract the information from various systems that might not always be simple mm-hmm. to pull from. Um, if, if you, if you're in an insurance space, like I am and, and you, you know, you're very, as you know, right, very regulatory, uh, focused, right. We have a lot of things that we have to do for our customers and, and for our brokers and so forth. And I think, you know, in that standpoint, you need someone that really is a strong compliance leader that understands the, the nuances that may exist, for example, in the U S the statutory side or you know regulatory or if you're looking over in London I mean there's different there's different avenues right depending on um, you know what 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 the whole is you're trying to yeah it really is based on a function by function basis as well right like different functions have completely different behavioral traits you'd be looking for 
I was telling, I was telling someone the other day that there's not a single salesperson that exists that would ever get through an HR screening process, right? Like <laughs> HR loves policies and procedures and, you know, dotting the I's and salespeople are supposed to wing it and shoot from the hip and make it up as they go and problem solve and be gregarious. And that would scare the heck out of any HR person. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Talking yeah. about, um, about the eight different countries that you're operating in, what can you give us in that perspective of, of lessons that you've learned from operating in, you know, in Europe and in Asia? Um, what do you see them doing differently at the leadership level? Let's start with, with Europe first and even maybe naming a couple countries that you operate in. Have you seen anything that, you know, in Switzerland they do this or in, in France they do that? Yeah, so I personally have not worked uh, just yet uh, with, with Asia um, because it's it's, we, we have our claims function has not necessarily um, been been exposed to that just yet. Um, but in just the style, because so we can focus on Europe, uh, we we operate in, like I said, I think it's eight, eight countries and, you know, it ranges, you know, Benelux, we, we have that wing, we have Iberia, um, which is which is obviously a piece down in the southern part of, of Europe uh, with Spain and Portugal. Um, and and we're also in France and Germany um, and, uh, Ireland, which obviously is, um, and, and yeah. so on. So the, the fact to answer your question, I think, you know, we, it is, it is something that I have not necessarily, um, been too, too, uh, have not had an opportunity necessarily to work a ton with our, our Europe based, uh, employees in each of those countries just yet, but I've worked a lot with the leaders that ultimately are, are, are managing those teams and, you know, I can tell you that there are, I mean, there are challenges with that in terms of different cultures and in terms of, you know, even community, obviously language. And, and there's a number of things that you have to, to really work through and, and make sure that, you know, you're aligned on. Um, I think to me, it's very exciting. They, though. I mean, I, they, I've always wanted to. Do they to lead people differently yeah. or do they make decisions differently or do they approach culture differently at all? Um, you know, I think I think the probably the level of information needed to make decisions may differ to some degree. I, I you know, I'd, I'd need to dig into that a bit more to provide more specifics. But I think, you know, yeah, there there is a a different way to work, right? Depending on um, possibly the, the country you may be in, and that and that's that's the same way as it is in the United States, right? In terms of the way we operate here. So I think, I mean, in the way you communicate and you know, terminology and even you know, obviously the, the laws and the way we operate regulates from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, it is, it is a, a bear when you're trying to figure out exactly how you need to, to function in these pieces, these places. And I, and I would say that that's why it's so critical that you have the people, like I mentioned, the compliance folks who really understand the, the countries that we operate in, or, you know, the, the staff that obviously has worked in that country for, for their careers, for example, and they understand the dynamics of how you best should communicate with a customer on a particular mm-hmm. issue, right? A claim or whatever it may be. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something about, like I said, I've only been here now for about eight or nine months, but I can tell you probably a year or two from now, I'll be able to give you more. <laughs> we'll circle, I'll circle back in, in a couple of years. We'll go for a beer in our, in uh, Scottsdale. Tell me about, um, so you, I think you said that you started really in the claim space almost right out of college. Is that true? Did I hear that right? Yeah, I I, uh, I came I came out of college, and I remember there were there were a couple of opportunities that I I remember pretty pretty clearly. One was more on the sales side, 
uh, and the other was was more on the insurance side. And I remember um, I at the time I was you just got out of school and I was trying to think of you know what's the closest location to my parents' <laughs> home so that I had the, the opportunity to you know pay off loans and do all the stuff that that we all have to deal with um, to a certain degree and. You know, it was a company I walked into that, you know, gave me a good opportunity. I learned very quickly that, um, you know, it was it was a very exciting field if you were willing to kind of take chances and learn different things. And and uh, yeah, to answer your, I guess your question simply, yes, that, that's where I no, started. Okay. So do you think that's part of why you've been successful in your career is that you would have been able to stay in a niche and you've gained a lot of, of domain expertise? Um or do you think you would have been successful had you, you know, worked in three or four different, completely different industries? Do you think industry experience has played a role at all? Um, I, it's a good, I mean, I think it could have. I mean, I, I feel, you know, I, I feel that, you know, when I got into the business I'm in, I didn't, I don't think anybody goes to college. I mean, maybe some folks do. I know I didn't go to college and think when I graduate, I want to work in an insurance company and, um, you know, out of college, I want to be, you know, claims adjuster, you know, right out of school for the first right. six months. Like, I, I don't think that was ever kind of in the back of my mind. And, you know, I, I feel like the the piece with me is I've always been interested in learning about different things. So while I have been in the insurance space for, you know, the majority of my career, I, I would say that I've always operated in different um, functional areas. Yeah. Like I said, I've been in finance for a bit, I've been in IT, and I've been in, you know, underwriting in a, a bunch of different areas. So I've learned a lot about the business itself. So oftentimes people in claims functions may may have a very good understanding of what we call bottom line results, you know, expense and, and so forth. But then, you know, the, the individuals that are able to to really understand top line and, and how the PL works and you know all the, the, the pieces that tie into the ratios that we use in insurance, I think those are the individuals that can kind of create that pocket of opportunity for themselves. I mean, I also on the side, I mean, just, just on that point, I mean, I am, you know, I, I focused a lot on real estate as well. So that is a kind of a side passion for me where, you know, I didn't have any experience whatsoever when I moved out to Arizona, you know, within a short period of time, it's something that I've slowly developed. So just an example of, you know, thinking when, when things create an excitement for me, it's something I typically will, you know, march right at as opposed to the shying away from because it's not something I'm that's interesting to. as well i love that you've had the the um, leadership expertise in so many different functional areas of the business as well was there any of those areas that were um kind of harder that maybe developed some different skills for you i'd say i'd say when i worked in the teams that were more kind of uh you know technology and it based uh, as related more so to you know because because again if you come out of college and you're operating very much on a uh, you're dealing more with customers and servicing and more of that side of the equation and more legal type yep. reviews. And then you go, and then you go into more of a, a system and, you know, huge technology transformations and, you know, engaging with the business that's operating in those future systems against what they're operating in today. You know, you start to learn a lot of different skills and how to pull it all together. And that to me, I'd say if, there was one thing that I jumped into that probably allowed me to really get um, the opportunities that have, that have resulted. Uh, it would, would probably be that role where I, you know, I was able to roll out a number of, of systems that were very big in our industry. And as a result of that, it, it created opportunities which 
which proved that I could do more than just that because I've already done it. And then it just, it grew to the point where my role became much broader and uh, exposure followed. Interesting. Talk about um, the uh, the willingness to take on roles. What was the mindset that you had in doing that? Was it was it something like you knew intuitively that if you took on those roles, it would help you in your career? Or was it more just the excitement of something new that you wanted to try out? Or um, what, what gives you that opportunity? Uh, or- I think I think it was probably a combination of both. I mean, I, I think the intuitively, I, I, I feel like if you, I mean, I don't know, I just, I was thinking of it logically, right? At the time I was out of school, I didn't, you know, I was younger in my career. I mean, I, I wasn't the person that people were going to with, with, you know, looking for information on, on big decisions and direction. And, you know, I just, but I just, I made it a point to always try to find time or, or try to get time rather with, with the people that I kind of aspired to be like, you know, in terms of their professional careers. And then as I started talking to them more, I started learning about how they mm-hmm. got there. And then as I started learning how they got there, I started saying, well, how could I kind of use what I've learned from them to then maybe someday be in a role like theirs? And then, you know, gradually it just snowballed to the point where, you know, I, I now am at a point where if, if I were to think throughout my career, the people I've worked for, I could probably tell you each person I've worked for and what I think about what I took from each of them in terms of what I wanted to kind of, you know, mold my career around. And uh, it, obviously I haven't mastered that. I don't, I don't claim to, to do that, but, um, but it is something that I've always I purposely try to seek out the advice of those that I find to be overly successful to understand how they got That's there. That's cool. Um, because how, how else to learn than from the people that have already made I it. I love that. So if Tom was was talking to himself back at you know, 21, 22 years old, you're just kind of graduating college, you're getting ready to embark on your career. What word of advice would you give for yourself um, you know, back then that you know to be true now, but you wish you'd known back when you were 20, 21, 22? Um. I would say I would see be be even more willing to take risks when you're when you're early on in your career. I mean, I think I made those choices and they were successful and you know and in hindsight it all worked out, but I probably could have even accelerated it faster if I if I was willing to be a little bit more uh, you know aggressive in terms of you know trying to take opportunities that I thought were maybe not the right ones and but yet yeah, could be a, a a piece to add to the to your resume and then you know to kind of build that that foundational knowledge of the business um but i mean with that being said i did do that too so it's kind of like maybe i'm being too of a hypocrite i think it's it's just for me it's always could it could it have been done better well, you know and to me i think yeah, it could have possibly. It sounds but. like you you probably didn't have the um, the conscious competence. You you were doing it, but you didn't even know you were really doing it. But now it's almost like when you have that conscious competence, it can move to the unconscious competence. Maybe you're just gonna, yeah, Absolutely. you, you, were, you Absolutely. were doing it well, but maybe now you just wish you knew you were doing it. Yeah, exactly. Tom Walzik, the COO for Hiscox. Thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second in Command podcast. Really appreciate the time. Okay, great. Talk to you soon. Appreciate Cameron. it. Thank Thanks you very much. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.